0: We continue our sermon series in the gospel of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter seven, verses one through 12. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide that has the, the scripture printed along with an outline with application questions. That's to help you follow along with the sermon. Matthew chapter seven, verses one through 12. Judge not that you be not judged. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Pastor Chuck Swindoll recalls an experience he had when he was teaching at a week-long Bible conference. And after the first night when he taught, he met a married couple that came up to him and introduced themselves and, and, and were really excited to be at the conference this week, and he was glad to meet them. Well, from that point on, every time he would get up to teach, about 10 minutes into his message, the husband would fall asleep. And this went on and on, and and as the week progressed, every time he taught, 10 minutes in, the husband would fall asleep, Chuck Swindoll started to get irritated on the inside. So much so that by the end of the week, he figured that this man was there because his wife had dragged him there, and he had no desire to be there and no interest in hearing about the Bible. So after the last meeting and his last message, this couple came up to him, but specifically the wife came up to him and he was prepared for this wife to come up and ask for advice on what she should do about her husband who has zero interest in spiritual things and and how she should share the gospel with him. He was shocked because she came up and began to share how her husband had terminal cancer and that he is the one that actually drug her there or wanted her and both of them to be there. But because he was on so many pain meds, it made him drowsy. Then she said to him, she said, my husband loves the Lord, and you are his favorite Bible teacher. And this was his final wish, to come to a conference with you speaking. And this is what Chuck Swindoll said at that moment as he reflected. He said, I stood there all alone as deeply rebuked as I ever had been. Judging others, being quick to judge, having a critical spirit or a judgmental attitude. Unfortunately, we all know it very well because it comes so natural to us, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to work hard to criticize people. You don't have to work hard to rush to a judgment on someone or to impugn motives or to create a narrative around someone or to think the worst of someone. It just flows naturally out of us. Now, if there's one thing we've learned from Jesus's sermon on the mount, it's that he gets the human condition. Because what he's been talking about in this sermon has hit very close to home. And this section is no different. So for all of us in this room who are quick to criticize and quick to judge and for the critical spirit that we know well, the question becomes, how do we overcome a critical spirit? How do you overcome that judgmental attitude that we know so well? Well, it starts with knowing what the origin of a critical spirit is. Where does it come from? Now, before I get to the origin of the critical spirit, I wanna point out where it comes from in this passage. Where are we getting this from? Verses one to two. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what is Jesus saying here, and what is he not saying? Jesus is not forbidding all judgments here. He's not forbidding the use of a a discerning spirit. Don't judge doesn't mean don't think. It doesn't mean stick your head in the sand and never make a judgment or discern something. How do we know that? Well, verse six, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Obedience to this command requires discernment, doesn't it? You have to make a judgment to discern who is a dog or a pig. Now let me explain what Jesus meant by that. When he speaks of dogs here, He's not speaking of the cute, cuddly, hypoallergenic house pet. These were, in the first century, wild dogs that were vicious, that were unclean, that were dangerous. Pigs fell in the same category. So what is holy and what are the pearls? Well, in Matthew 13, Jesus calls the kingdom of God a pearl. So what is holy and pearls are referring to the gospel of the kingdom. That's what's of this incredible value is the gospel of the kingdom. And and some who hear the gospel only rebel against it and sometimes viciously attack it. So what Jesus is saying here is you don't continually offer the gospel to someone if they are hostile against it, viciously attacking it, having contempt against it. At some point, you stop offering the gospel to that person. Now, this requires discernment. You have to make a judgment. Jesus modeled this out. He didn't speak a word before Herod. The apostle Paul in Corinthians, he preached the gospel to the Jews for a while, but when they became hostile and attacked viciously the gospel, he turned away. And there are other places in the New Testament where this is modeled out. The point is that Jesus is not saying here, don't ever think, don't ever make a judgment, don't ever discern, don't suspend your, your, your critical thinking, not criticizing thinking, but critical thinking, no. So what is he saying when he says, judge not, that you be not judged? What is Jesus forbidding here? He's forbidding that that critical spirit. He's forbidding that quickness or that readiness to pounce and come to a judgment or a conclusion on someone. In fact, the verb that Jesus uses here shows up again in Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This verb, it means to be judgmental in the seat where only God belongs. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things, which means when God renders a judgment, He knows the circumstances. He knows the the intentions and the motives of the heart. When you and I make a judgment, we don't know all the circumstances. We don't know the motivation of the person's heart. The story about Chuck Swindoll is a great example of that. And we all have been guilty of that. Where we rush to a judgment and we don't know the situation, the circumstance, or what's going on in someone's heart. This is what Jesus is forbidding. And when we rush to those kind of judgments, conclusions, verdicts, we become hypercritical and we move quickly to condemning people. And that's what Jesus is forbidding. A judgmental attitude reveals a prideful spirit, right? A judgmental attitude reveals that we are sitting on the seat where only God sits. And in that pride, we're inviting God's judgment, not his mercy. So are you quick to criticize people? Are you quick to see the worst in people? Or are you quick to to really go on a hunt to find the worst in people and rush to some critical judgment? Now, how would Jesus answer that question for you? Well, I want you to notice here that, the, that five verses, verses one through five, are reserved for judgmental people. And only one verse, verse six, is, is reserved for undiscerning people. So just look at that ratio. And the ratio tells you where the real danger is. I think our real danger is not in being undiscerning, though that's possible and that happens. The real danger is in us being judgmental and being critical. So the answer is yes. I have a critical spirit. You have a critical spirit. We are quick to judge. So where does it come from? Let's get back to the origin then. If that's, that's what Jesus is speaking of here, what's the origin of a critical spirit? Where does it come from? Look at verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Speck, that's like speck of sawdust versus log. A big difference. Jesus is picturing a person here who fixes his gaze on something that is, relatively unimportant in someone else and failing to see something that's very important in himself. Or what he finds wrong in his brother is very small compared to what God sees is wrong in him. We are excellent at finding fault in others. And we are not good at seeing fault in ourselves. There's a a great example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses one through seven. There we learn that, that King David steals another man's wife. King David already had a very large harem, but he lustfully pursued another woman, seduced her, and then found out that she had become pregnant by him. When he found this out, He realized that her husband was on the front lines on the military front fighting the king's battles. And so he arranged for her husband to be killed in battle. So now King David is guilty of adultery and murder. The prophet Nathan goes to David and instead of confronting David outright, he tells David a short story or a parable about this little poor farmer who had one lamb and how his powerful, rich neighbor farmer who already had a large flock stole his one little lamb. And after Nathan tells this story to David, David is outraged. I mean, he is outraged. And in his seething anger, he says to Nathan, who is this man? He's ready to pounce. And Nathan says, you are that man. David had a log in his eye. And yet he was fixated on this speck in this wicked farmer's eye. Now here's the question in that story. Why did David get so angry at this wicked farmer? who had stolen this poor farmer's lamb. Why did David get so angry? Perhaps some of the force of his wrath arose from his own suppressed guilt. That he had guilt and it was suppressed and that that's what drew out his ire and his wrath. In this story, could it be, could it be that your critical spirit, your quickness to judge others, your quickness to find fault in others, arises from your own suppressed guilt? You know, what we find and what we see is that oftentimes what you are most highly critical of in others can oftentimes be what you are guilty of yourself. That when you find someone that just pours out wrath on a certain sin in someone or a certain behavior in someone, a lot of times there is a log. There is suppressed guilt inside of that very sin. It causes that wrath to come out. I would say it this way. The degree of your criticalness or of your judgmentalness oftentimes reflects the degree of your own suppressed sin or your suppressed guilt over your sin. So how do you overcome critical spirit? if, If the origin of a critical spirit is an unhealed wound or suppressed guilt, which is just sin that has not yet received the healing touch of Christ. If if the origin of a critical spirit is an unhealed wound or unhealed sin, well, then what's the remedy? What's the remedy for critical spirit? So we arrive at these verses that are so often pulled out of context. Verses seven to eight. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. These are attractive verses. Verses. I want that house. If I pray hard enough for it, the offer will be accepted. I wanna get into this college. And if I ask, my application will be accepted. Or I want this cancer or this illness taken away. And if I ask, I will be healed. Now you all know the problem with those types of prayers when they don't get answered. You turn to these verses and go, everyone who asks receives. God, can I trust you? You said it, can I trust you? This is why context is so important when you read the Bible, so important. What is the context of this call to prayer? It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Sermon on the Mount where where Jesus is calling his followers to that which seems impossible. If we look back over the Sermon on the Mount and look at what Jesus has called his followers to, For example, don't get angry. Don't look lustfully at someone. Don't retaliate towards someone who has hurt you. When someone insults you, be ready for another insult. Love your enemies. Don't seek the approval of others. Don't be anxious. That was last week. Don't judge people. Don't be critical. Got it, Jesus, I'll take it from here. I can do it. You've given me the commands, I can do it. We are a very independent people. We are a ruggedly independent people. And Jesus' call to prayer here exposes our independence. Right? Ask means pray. Seek means to do so with earnest sincerity. Knock means to, 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 to ask, to do it with sincerity, and to actively pursue God's way that his door would be open. Ask, seek, knock. And these verbs are all in the present tense, which means that this is, uh, this is persistent, ongoing. It's like, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, keep on, keep on. for what? What are we asking for? Well, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we're asking for, verse 11, the good gifts that will empower us to do what seems impossible. So for example, Father, All I want to do is retaliate against that person who insulted me. Give me the strength to forgive and to absorb. Another insult. Father, Who is see my enemies suffer. Give me the gift of your love that will empower me to bless them. Father, if I spin the truth just a tiny bit, oh, the gains for me are huge. Father, give me the gift of sincerity and honesty that I would speak the truth no matter what the consequence. Father, the pleasure of that adulterous look or relationship is too enticing. Give me purity. Or Father, I love money and I want more of it. Give me the sweet gift of contentment in whatever you provide for me. Father, it feels so good to judge people and to criticize them. Give me the gift of humility that I can see my own sin and own it, that I can see my log. These are prayers that God will answer. Everyone who asks receives with these prayers. Because while it may not be the will of God for you to get that house or go to that college or have this circumstance, it is the will of God that you would be filled with a forgiving spirit and filled with love and filled with purity and filled with humility and sincerity and contentment. Ask, keep on asking. See, keep on seeking. Listen, the reason that we have to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking, because if you're anything like me, the moment he gets you with humility, what can be true an hour later? You're filled back up with pride. Or the moment he gives you the ability to love your enemy, a day later, you're ready to roast them again, right? And so it's that ongoing prayer. God, give me humility. An hour later, Father, give me humility and he will never get tired of that prayer. Father, give me love. Give me love for my enemy. You can ask that over and over, minute by minute, and he will never get tired of that prayer. And he will answer it abundantly. Broadus says it this way. One may be a truly industrious man and yet poor in temporal things. But one cannot be a truly praying man and yet poor in spiritual things. Because every time you ask for love, purity, humility, sincerity, contentment, God will give it. And you'll have to ask again when you fall away from those things. And why? Because God is infinitely generous and infinitely good and abundant in his provision. He loves to provide. He gives this example of the bread and the fish in verses nine and 10, right? Father, son type of situation. He says, if your son asks for bread, are you gonna give him a stone? And the idea here is that a stone can look like a small loaf of bread. So are you going to pretend to give him what would satisfy him, even though it wouldn't satisfy him? Of course not. Or in the case of the fish, your son asks for a fish and you give him a serpent. That serpent is probably the uh, eel-like catfish that existed in the, the first century in Galilee that looked like a fish, but it couldn't be eaten. And so he's asking as a father, would you mock your son's hunger with something that wouldn't satisfy it? And his answer is verse 11. If you then who are evil, meaning sinful, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You ask for a forgiving spirit, for love, for purity, for humility, for sincerity, for contentment. God will give it, he will lavish it upon you and you will have to keep on asking. There's a great, vivid, riveting example of persistent prayer in Genesis chapter 32. It's the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Now, Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a deceiver. He was a cheat. He was a trickster. He was prideful. He was a self-absorbed man. Just like you and me. And Jacob, because of all this, got his brother Esau to give him his birthright. The birthright was incredibly valuable. And he schemed and got the birthright out of his brother Esau and then became really fearful of what his brother Esau might do to retaliate. So Jacob was on the run. He's on the run with his family. He got to a place where he sent his family across the stream, but Jacob spent the night alone. And it says that God came to him in the form of a man and began to wrestle with him. And as he wrestled with Jacob, he dislocated his hip. Now, I would venture to say that not many, maybe no one in here has ever dislocated a hip. I never have, but I can't imagine the pain of having your hip dislocated. As they're wrestling, this man says to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And what that meant from Jacob was until you empower me, to love others instead of myself, until you empower me with humility instead of pride, until you empower me to be honest and not deceive people, until you bless me, I'm not letting go. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. God replied to Jacob, He said, you have striven with God and have prevailed. Jacob persisted in prayer with God all night long. And I love the visual of wrestling because that's what he was doing. He said, I will not let go until you bless me. Says he prevailed. God changed Jacob that night. He changed him. He gave him a new name. From Jacob, his name became Israel. He was a transformed man, and he gave Jacob a limp from the dislocated hip. That limp was a testimony of God's goodness. Oftentimes, the prevailing persistent prayer for love, for humility, for purity, for sincerity, for contentment, those things that we ask and keep on asking for, oftentimes they are delivered with a limp. Do you have a limp? I do. Got a few of them. Your limp is a testimony of God's goodness. And then he answers prayer. These kinds of prayers that we're speaking of here. Prior to meeting Jesus Christ, you and I are unhealed wounders. Prior to Christ, we are unhealed wounders of other people. But when we meet Christ, who is the wounded healer, by his wounds you have been healed, we are transformed from unhealed wounders into wounded healers. A critical spirit is evidence of an unhealed wounder. And you and I will continue to struggle with the critical spirit. But when the spirit of God dwells in us and we find ourselves persistently praying and asking God to fill us with love and peace and purity and humility, ready he heals. And we become healed. We become wounded healers. How do you overcome a critical spirit? First, it's understanding the origin of it, which is an unhealed wound. It's an unhealed wound. It's it's suppressed guilt, which is really just sin that hasn't, hasn't received the healing touch of Christ. And out of that wound or that unhealed wound, we wound. That's where the origin of a critical spirit comes from. So the remedy is to seek the one, to seek the one who gives and grants abundantly humility and love and purity and contentment. But then what what is the evidence of transformation? What's the evidence of an uncritical spirit? Verse 12 So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is known as the golden rule. And it's not unique to Christianity. In fact, it was in that day, lots of religions and philosophies claimed the golden rule, but they were always in the the other religions, it was always in the negative, or it was always stated in the negative. It would be, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. Apparently, Jesus is the only one that stated it in the positive. And that has big implications because Jesus, by stating it in the positive, wasn't just calling out sins of commission, meaning things you do that you shouldn't do. He was giving space for sins of omission, meaning things you don't do that you should do. In other words, Jesus is not saying, hey, just don't be critical of people. That wasn't enough. It's not enough to just not be critical. It's the call to love. And the phrase at the end of verse 12, for this is the law and the prophets, connects this to the two great commands in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, when Jesus says, love God, love neighbor, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the golden rule here is synonymous with the two great commandments, to love God and love neighbor. It's a call to love. Now, what's this have to do with a critical spirit and a judgmental attitude? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 has that very famous section where he lays out what love really is. He explains or expounds upon love. And in there, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse seven, he says, love believes all things. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word believe in the, in the Greek is, is the word for faith. So you say, well, does that mean belief there? Does it mean belief in Christ and the things of the gospel? Well, if if that was the case, a more literal translation would be has all faith. But here, Paul's actually talking about what it looks like to love others. It's the love of neighbor love that he is expounding upon. And so in, in the context here, love believes all things means a loving attitude which assumes the best in others. It means giving the benefit of the doubt. It means assuming the best in someone versus assuming the worst. That's what it means that love believes all things. Failure to believe all things is marked by suspicion. It's marked by uh, impugning motives or questioning motives. It's marked by creating a narrative of of what's going on in this person's life and then coming up with the critical response you're ready to pounce with. That's the opposite of love believes all things. In other words, a critical spirit is the opposite of love believes all things. Believing all things, let me just remind you here, doesn't mean that you don't operate with discernment. And remember, verse six is a call to discernment The first five verses are addressing the judgmental spirit. But you still operate with discernment. But love believes all things means I'm gonna give the benefit of the doubt. I'm gonna give charity. I'm gonna assume the best instead of the worst. That's what it means to love or that love believes all things. Now, why? Why does love believe all things? Because love believes in the sanctifying work of God. And that when you look at someone, they are not a finished product. That God is sanctifying that person. That God's sanctifying work is growing that that person just like it's growing you. That's why love believes all things. It's rooted, it's not unfounded. You know, we can say love believes all things and it kind of comes across as we just kind of don't ever think we just kind of like we just going to believe everything that's not at all it's very much founded in the two realities that are the foundation of God's sanctifying work on the cross and that is justice and mercy the two foundational realities to God's sanctifying work on the cross is justice and mercy When Jesus hung on the cross, justice was accomplished, your sin was judged, and mercy was accomplished, you were spared. And so those two realities are what empower us to operate by love believes all things. This person that I'm looking at, that I know that I'm in relationship with, I can assume the best I can give benefit of the doubt because God's sanctifying work is happening in that person. So how do you overcome a critical spirit? I am getting very close to having to wear bifocal glasses. I have hit that age Uh, My current glasses, which you don't see me wear because I'm wearing contact lenses right now, help me see things at a distance. I have very, very bad eyesight. Six inches away, things get blurry. So I am thankful for contact lenses and glasses. But I am beginning to struggle to read, which means that I'm gonna have to get bifocals or reading glasses, but because I can't see far away, I'm gonna need bifocals. I'm gonna need two sets of lenses, One for distance and one for up close. And if I don't have both, my vision's gonna be compromised. To overcome a critical spirit, you need two lenses. You need the lens of justice and you need the lens of mercy if you only have the lens of justice, if that's the only lens that you operate with and that you look through, you will be very critical and very condemning of people. But if you only have the lens of mercy that you're operating with and you're only looking through the lens of mercy, you will be very enabling and very undiscerning. You need both. Which lens are you missing? Or maybe the better question is, which lens do you neglect to look through? Now we're back to verses seven and eight. Ask, seek, knock. Father, give me both lenses in my relationships, the lens of of justice and the lens of mercy so that I can love people well and not have a critical spirit and a judgmental attitude so that I can see the log in my own eye and be filled with all humility as I relate to others. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, we are here today because of your justice and mercy. You judged our sin on the cross through Jesus, and you spared us because of your mercy. Father, we confess that we are so quick to only operate with a lens of judgment. And because of that, we confess that we are hypercritical. We confess that we're condemning. And we ask you, we ask, we seek, we knock and ask you to give us the gift of your love, your humility, sincerity, honesty, purity, contentment, and that we would keep on asking, Father, so that we would be empowered to love others well, that you would rid us of our critical spirit, and that you would help us to love people through both lenses that we desperately need. Father, thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for your lavish love that you've poured out on us that we remember in this Advent season that Jesus has come once and he's coming again. Father, we long for that day when we don't have to wrestle with a critical spirit. But until Jesus comes again, we will. And we need your help and we need your spirit to fill us with your love and your forgiveness that we can then extend to others. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.